0: The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov career usbp. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com bundle. Restrictions apply. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Martin Ware ranks amongst the greatest pioneers of electronic music. He was a founding member of the Human League, along with Ian Craig Marsh. And after an acrimonious split, both left to form the British Electric Foundation, BEF, and Heaven 17 with their lead singer, Glenn Gregory. Today, Martin's a professor, a speaker, and has a lifelong interest in architecture, and he still tours with Glenn Gregory as Heaven 17. In part one of this podcast, he talks about the early success of the experimental Human League, remember, Being Boiled, and what he terms as the betrayal of Phil Oakey when he was forced out of the band. But first, we go back to his roots in Sheffield. What was then the centre of steel manufacturing in Britain? I presume you are, well, you, look, you know, you're in your studio. It looks a little bit like a bunker there. That thing yeah. across, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it says, yeah, tile yard, yeah. It looks quite plush. It's a bit, it's, 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 um, the way it's happened is quite interesting. It used to belong to a friend of mine called Drew Masters, who uh, is a film composer, and he moved out. And um, I was asked to move in here ages ago, and I said, look, I really like that studio. It's the only one I really like. I said, but I can only afford to pay for it for three days a week. So they let me in, and now they can't get me out.
0: I <laughs> did love to put the rent up. <laughs> You're still on the three days a week payout. Uh, yeah,
1: it? yeah, but uh, I get to use it more than that, so it's great. No, it's beautiful. It's like a 1970s studio. you know. No windows, no clocks. Just it's a, a No
0: time. You never know yeah. what time it
1: is. Yeah, yeah it's right
0: in the zone, yeah. Now, every interview I've, I've uh, really ever read with you, it always has a reference to the steel forges in Sheffield and this sound that I suppose was really the sound of your childhood yeah. when you were growing up. What emotions yeah. did that sound have for you back then? What did it mean?
1: I didn't really, uh, you know, it's a bit esoteric for a young child to think about such things. It was just normal for me. Um, it's only later I've come to kind of post-rationalise it and go because I found, because I just thought it was I thought everybody had the same soundscape you know, why wouldn't you think that? Uh, we had you know, we weren't living in a world of internet and sharing ideas and stuff like that it was just me on my street in my two two down house an outside toilet, no bathroom uh, with the windows open in the summer and listening to the Deep kind of heartbeat of the drop for just zooming up uh, from the uh, the valleys in Sheffield. You know, from, how have you from... rationalised
0: it later on? Then, how have you actually then um, seen yourself what it is? Uh,
1: I've only rationalised the the kind of uh, I suppose it's nostalgic effect it has on me. I, I I've always loved um, the sound of metal being being worked on. In different ways, because it was just part of my everyday soundscape. I also love the smell of metal being worked on. You know, there's a certain ozonal quality to it which I really like, and it was a common thing in Sheffield. And um, but the big giant drop forges were the thing because they that they those sounds travelled miles. You know, you could hear them miles away. Whereas when you walk around the city centre at that time, it was all kind of the sound of finishing off and grinding and, and stuff like that. So uh, I know it sounds a bit like, you know, the four Yorkshiremen sketch, but that's what it was like. You know.
0: How was your childhood? How, how was your relationship with your parents? Were they a supportive family? What do you feel that they gave you? And what do you feel that they maybe didn't give you?
1: Um I am very lucky in as much as um my my father was was a tool maker steel worker, uh and my mum was a uh you know a stay at home mum looking after the family, which is quite common in those days um we had virtually no money in fact we'd regu- regularly run out of money before my dad got paid on fridays uh and you know we'd be stuck with you know, I don't know. Sutherland's uh, Sutherland's salmon spread sandwiches and stuff like that, you know, like really, really horrible stuff. stuff. Uh, but, you know, we, and it, it sounds like a bit of a cliché, but they were the most loving parents you could imagine. I didn't know anything other than love when I was growing up. My dad was working so hard that I only really got to spend time with him at weekends. We, we loved, you know, hanging out together in parks and going to play in crown green bowling in the local park and yeah, uh, you know imagine working 60 hours a week in a in a dark metal dust filled factory so like the, out, the outdoors was a very important place for us and uh, you know we had a very strong community there were lots of people we knew all the neighbors on the street were the, all the kids of roughly the same age would play football together in the streets, um, I look back on my childhood as being um, idyllic, really,
0: in a lot of ways. Having a father that worked in that industry and uh, I having working class parents, I presume that also the social aspect, which was something that uh, was also transferred to you because that's something that not has not only been through your music, it's also been part of your life. Yes. Um, so how how important do you see that as having parents uh, of that class and experiencing their problems and issues as a young child?
1: Well, they, you see, they saw their problems as being um, the problems that we would all regard as just everyday living problems. So it's just a different context, that's all. Whereas, you know... You know, I'm living in a posh part of London now, Marylebone Lane, in a lovely penthouse apartment, and I'm surrounded by posh people, essentially, um, and and lots of restaurants and shops and all the things, all the material things that you could possibly wish for, really. But um, there's not as much um, there's not there's not as much uh, soulful satisfaction. Uh, just generally in the uh, in, in the in the zeitgeist of the place, and that's pretty much true for a lot of London, apart from you know specific local communities in different areas. Um, and so I grew up in a, a very busy city with a strong uh, socialist perspective, um, which I regard as completely normal, and still do. Uh, I think why should you not want to look after your fellow man, even if you don't know them? Um there was no ra- i didn't i never saw any racism when I was growing up. I never saw any um i used to dress uh in my formative years in the most outrageous ways uh I suppose you'd call it cross dressing really um I used to wear women's clothes as did Philoki all the time you know when we went out it was from the glam period in the early seventies Ne- I was never threatened, never, ever shouted at anything. You know, I do think we're uh, we're now in a different age where uh, intolerance seems to be on the rise, as amplified by social media. And um, I'm very grateful for my socialist background. I'm very grateful for uh, what my parents taught me to be right and wrong. It seems terribly unfair. Out fashion at the moment if i posted something on facebook yesterday saying that you know this new uh lexicography of framing reframing uh spin um uh uh, uh handbrake turns you know this kind of thing where the normalization of of uh, uh or the obfuscation of reality and truth is a really dangerous thing more dangerous than fascism as far as i'm concerned we're in a we're in a kind of anti-truth war at the moment where um it's now being normalized that everything uh it's it's assumed that you can't trust anything that any politicians say which is really frightening i talk to a lot of black cab drivers in london who seem to be the core audience for Heaven 17 at the moment. And uh, they all know Heaven 17. And um, get talking to them, and all of them, once you scrape the surface, want to do the right thing. Not, not all of them, but most of them. You know, want to be decent human beings, but they just have been told so incessantly that everything, you know, all politicians are bad, all opinions are equally bad. So this false equivocation thing is a problem. So at the core of my being is socialism. I believe in people. Uh, the art that I create is aimed in a kind of sonic muralist way uh, uh, as being um, aimed at people. I regard myself as... Uh, uh, I want to be one of the people. I don't want to be above them or or um, uh, some kind of elite group. I'm not interested in that. And that's permeated my entire creative career.
0: But did your parents support you when you went... Um, you, I mean, first of all, you went to that art collective. Um, I can't remember yeah. what it's called now. Um, uh, Meat, went, whistle. Yeah. Meat whistle, yeah. It
1: wasn't red. That's a very posh way of putting it. It was a, basically a youth club with a, with with a few uh, with a, with a few bells and whistles added, you know. Um, but it, with, but what came out of it was uh, experimentation in different artistic forms: music, art, sculpture, theatre. Uh, but there was no kind of uh, there was a little bit of kind of gentle guidance from the people who ran it. But basically, it was our thing.
0: But there's also a social aspect to it because people came from yeah. different walks of life there. So exactly. can you tell me what you encountered and how that was? Can you actually remember going there initially oh, yeah. and encountering these different people?
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it was. Um... Well, first of all, I I passed my LEM plus and went to the best grammar school in state school. In, in in Sheffield called King Edward the Seventh School, looking back on it now, a wannabe private school. So it's like this big kind of Palladian edifice. Uh, it was quite impressive, and all the all the all the masters wore gowns and and uh, and mortar boards, and oh, it was ridiculous. It was ludicrous. It was a state school, you know, and then it became comprehensive halfway through. Um, the standard of education was rubbish, by the way. I thought, looking back on it now, and I'm involved in education now, as you know. Um, I, I, you know, I left half halfway through the first year of A levels. I just couldn't see the point in staying on. I wasn't going. I wasn't going to go to university. We couldn't afford. My parents couldn't afford to support me while I was at university. So, um, even though I, my uh, masters wanted me to go to Oxford or Cambridge and take the take the entrance exams. Said, well, there's no point, you know. I'm just got to go and earn some money for the family. We, we were skint, you know. Uh, so that's what happened, and I don't regret that at all. And I forgot what was the original question was, there.
0: It? Yeah, it was just about the people at Meat Whistle, and uh, all oh, right, they okay, had so on Meat you. Whistle. Yeah, can you describe them? Can yeah. you describe who was there?
1: And that's where I met Glenn and Ian from Hem Seventeen in reddington the actor is still a great friend of mine uh, lots of people I still keep in touch with there were some real weirdos i mean you know uh, people who were uh, had extremely original ideas but were not um, uh, didn't have the outlet for them until we all came together um, at meat whistle
0: do you think you would have had a career um... In well in, in a number of things, but music and I want to call it art really, in music and art, um, without that chance that Meat Whistle gave you, do you think there would have been another route for you to have success?
1: Um, I, I've pondered this question, and um, I think it would I think <sighs> unlikely. all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I didn't really have a group of friends, apart from Philoki who went to my school. I didn't really have a group of friends who were of the uh, uh there wasn't a pool there wasn't a gene pool of people that were creative like that all my friends at, uh, at school were nice people in everything but most of them were just interested in getting a steady job and going to university uh, and I, yeah, I wasn't going to do that because we couldn't afford to so where would i have met these people
0: what than... connected you and in craig marsh initially
1: um I've never met anybody like him. I mean, He's a completely unique character. I mean
0: um What oh, way please describe him?
1: Um very quiet but kind of uh, now I know uh, you know kind of di- di- he'd be diagnosed now as kind of bipolar I suppose but um very manic when he was on and very quiet when it, when it, and, and reserved and Self-doubting when he when he wasn't. Um, very funny, very um, creative, very. Uh, f- I mean, just a great, and interesting person, and and and, and the, all the stuff that we did together, the future, um, the early Human League, Hem Seventeen, and the and early BEF, Could not have happened without Ian. <laughs>
0: You're listening to POP, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. It was only later that
1: I found out that um, his parents had won uh, won the pools just after we met. met. And um, we were wondering, how come Ian was getting all these amazing things like early VCRs and and stuff? I'm going, where's this money coming from? His dad must be a really successful builder. (laughs) And he'd won like hundred grand, which is a lot of money in those days, on the pools, and still in the you know quite a small house and lovely people, and uh, so that enabled him to kind of finance buying the early his early equipment and recording stuff, and he never let on until later, and um, and it, uh, just an incredible person, Ian. Yeah, just was I was to- like to him.
0: Go back just a little bit, because we're of similar age. And in, the, in that era, there was a lot of science fiction in literature. Um, there was a lot of science fiction on TV. And there was the BBC Radiophone Workshop. Which was, Radiophonic, yeah. Radiophonic Workshop, sorry, yeah. Which is ex- incredibly experimental. Yeah. Um, I know that science fiction literature has clearly had an influence. You know, just, Yeah the names and so on. Um, and you've been always been very much interested in the, in the, in the future, but how, um, the word is, how instrumental do you think that the music of those science fiction series and films, Quatermass of Doctor Who, how instrumental was that in actually influencing you in an early age?
1: Well, uh, completely uh, important. I mean, things like Forbidden Planet, you know, Louis and Baby Baron and, um, I mean, you know, it wasn't just music; it was everywhere. I mean, loads of science fiction series on TV, you know, Lost in Space, uh, Space Patrol, the the um, Marionette program, which is an offshoot in a way from um, all the Thunderbird stuff, Stingray, Firewall XL five. Everything seemed to be about the future, you know. And then, of course, uh, got to my teens and became a big fan of science fiction. Uh, writing and novels and writers. An enormous fan of uh, um, the more the more out there ones, shall we say, like um, J.G. Ballard and um, I kind of like Isaac Asimov. Uh, I really liked uh, Ray Bradbury and uh, um, I mean there were so many. I, I just. Uh, you know, kind of feasted on, on science fiction, couldn't get enough of it, um, because you've got to understand that uh, this. T- by this time I moved into a, a more modern council house, but we had no books, none, and we had, I think we had, sorry, we had six uh, volumes uh, of different um, uh, different subjects from the Encyclopedia Britannica, that was it. That's all my dad could afford. So I you know, I read those cover to cover about 10 times each. And then uh, as soon as I um, uh, went to the children's library and then to the main library, that was the highlight of my life at that point was being able having access to all this amazing writing. So I've always had a voracious capacity for learning, which just goes to show how shit that, that my school was, really, because they didn't identify it. Uh, or, or encourage it. So um, yeah, there's this, and also people forget how absolutely crucial, uh, in terms of mood of the times, was the space race. You know, you cannot over, you cannot overestimate how important that was. It was, in terms of um, providing an aspirational target for the future. How exciting. Landing on the moon, for God's sake. You know, we've not done anything that exciting for decades.
0: My childhood was obviously different in, in many ways, but I saw, I was totally fascinated by the future as well. And the future in aspects uh, of certain different aspects. David Bowie was the alien and I wanted to leave, I wanted to get out of my home as a teenager. You know, I just wanted to yeah. escape in some way. And... um You know, I was into all the the science fiction stuff, into science fiction, uh, Philip Dick and so on. And I saw it as an escape, rather than, uh, well, I don't know, it seems like there's a difference between my vision of it was an escape from my reality, whereas yours doesn't feel like it was. Is that true? No,
1: it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, It wasn't really an escape, because... Right. So here, he, here's the way I I, um, I, I categorise it. We, socially speaking, had a very stimulating upbringing. We, you know, always had good friends. There was more and more interesting things to do, and because we were denied a lot of a lot of um, ways to passively consume your environment, your, your social cohesion was really important as teenagers in Sheffield. I always lived in the city, near the city centre, and therefore uh, that's the, like the student area. So there was always this kind of mixing with the student cohort as well, which is massive in Sheffield. So there was a big social kind of excitement in Sheffield, um, which wasn't predicated on on um, on um, consuming. It's the way I put it, uh, which I think is the major difference between somewhere like Sheffield and somewhere like London, whereas I came to London, and when I moved down to London in the early 80s, there's so much stuff to do. There's that fear of missing out thing, so you end up doing lots of things, and that's how you meet people, and it's much more random, whereas this was like, there was loads of things to do, but you bump into the same people all the time. a <coughs> totally different thing, and so all your kind of common feelings get amplified in a much more concentrated way um i've become fascinated well i've always been fascinated with um the effect of cities on people i mean i do actually do some lecturing about it with various architectural association and bartlett school of architecture and you know i i would have probably had my social background been different gone into architecture or graphic designer or something like that, I feel. Um, yeah, so uh, in other words, there wasn't really a, a need, we didn't really feel a need to escape, except everybody, it seemed that anybody who had any ambition ended up going to London. And there was a bit of begrudgery by the people who'd never made it out of Sheffield about the people who kind of, they saw it as betraying their roots to a certain extent. Uh but in reality, you know, when we signed um uh, when the Humor league split and um and we decided to make a real go of it with Hem seventeen and B E F, we wanted to be uh on the spot to to um to kind of engage in a in a very uh, significant way with the record company so that we could Increase our chances of being successful, but because by that time we we understood that it was important. It's not just a matter of having a phone call occasionally, because, you, with a big company or biggish company like Virgin, it was important to be in their face all the time. And so when we moved down to London, we were actually five ten minutes walk away from Virgin Records in Portobello, and we used to go in there three, four times a week, for instance, stuff like that. Yeah.
0: But commerciality can't have played that bigger aspect before because it feels like a lot of the arguments from the initial human league, you and, uh, uh, Ian Craig Marsh and um, Addy, and then with Phil Oakey coming in and he, he adding a sort of uh, possibly the commercial side of it by being, you know, the look... Um, of, of the band and also in the direction that uh, eventually uh, it seemed like he wanted to take what was left behind of the human league. Um, it feels like that commerciality must've been the core argument back then. Was it, or was it something else? Well, it was a core argument when, which, well, when of... you, when you split with Phil, uh, Oakley, um, when that happened. No, no.
1: What happened was um, the record label, we signed to Virgin, obviously. We did two albums on Virgin. And they'd, they'd pumped quite a lot of money into paying for us to get on various tours with Suiting the Banshees and Perubo and The Stranglers, and you name it. European Tour with Iggy Pop. They, I mean, it used to cost money to buy onto tours for support acts in those days. And this was all, we didn't really understand it, but uh, that, that money was all adding to our unrecouped debt to the record company. And they couldn't break us into the mainstream because we were too uh, esoteric for them. No, they liked that, but they were just not making money. We were, we were trendy. And so, unbeknownst to me and Ian, no, not so much Ian, but me, behind the scenes, they were working to, to uh, separate Ian, uh, sorry, Phil and Ian initially, away from me in other words, throw me out the group, because they regarded me as the kind of artistic, more esoteric part of it, and they were, And then they would, and then they were working behind the scenes to get some commercial, more commercial songwriters like Joe Callis uh, etc., involved, and work on and and make the Human League into a uh, a fully fledged pop group as opposed to. a a kind of pop rock avant-garde group. Um, And they knew that I would never have gone for that, you know, because it would have been uh, a complete abrogation of... of, uh, So, um, anyway, that's the way it happened. It wasn't like us suddenly going, oh, we've got to earn some more money. We were doing everything we could. In fact, we were halfway through the third album when the betrayal of Phil... And, and uh, the record company and management happened.
0: You're listening to POP, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. And that's it for part one. In part two, Martin talks about the British Electric Foundation, BEF, and how he was partly instrumental in resurrecting Tina Turner's career. He also talks about musicians in the early 80s that were getting paid huge advances from the music industry, mainly without exhibiting that much talent. And if you like this podcast, connect with me on Instagram at steve.blame, or just follow or go to my Steady page. Just type in SteadyHQ.com and pop the history makers and you'll find it. Have a good one. See you soon. USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more